0: Obourne and Heller on cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar.
1: Hello, I'm Peter Obourne and I'm in Wiltshire, isolating from the coronavirus, and it is the most fabulously beautiful sunny day.
0: Hello, I'm Richard Heller. I'm self-isolating in my residence, Rubato Towers, in London south-east, and cursing the fact that it's also a very beautiful sunny day here.
1: Now, the really amazing thing is that Wisdom has been published! One of those firm dates in the calendar, and it's here it is in front of us, and I want to say, first of all, I think this is one of the best Wisdoms I've ever read. It's full of depth, of insight... Uh, of original ideas, of, of deep thinking, and of course, it's celebrating uh, the probably the greatest season of our lifetimes.
0: I agree. I think this is a wonderful edition of wisdom. It will very much be a collector's item as a wisdom, and it's going to be a great solace to readers in a summer when we don't know when cricket
1: will return. I know. I, I do think Wisden is going through a golden period, a golden summer like before the First World War and First Class cricket. Don't you agree? I mean, there's something really alive about it, real mind going into it. There is a lot of very original writing in it. Um, there's a lot of stuff that stands up as very
0: good writing, even if you're not interested in cricket, which I always think is the supreme test.
1: Now, last, last week we speculated about the identity of the five cricketers of the year. Uh, and we didn't do too badly. Here, here are the five. Uh, Joffre Archer, uh, Pat Cummings, Simon Harmer, Manus Labuschagne, and Elise Perry. Yes,
0: between us, we got four out of five. Slight mistake in um, guessing that Ian Morgan might be one of them because he's got it before. The one that got away from us, uh, and I kicked myself for this, was um, Simon Harmer of Essex and he was a really should have been on our radar before he was very very strong contender for his contribution to the championship county but and in one day cricket as well
1: yes i we did identify the hole which he fills which is the excellent loyal uh, county player who has an outstanding year often for the championship county and gets picked alongside the the superstars but he but we didn't notice him 83 wickets at 18 an average of 18, 10 five-wicket hauls. Um, and you've got to ask yourself, um, is this man on the English radar? I know he's played in South Africa. Has he played for South Africa?
0: He has. He's played He played five test matches for South Africa. I can never follow the rules in these things but because they, they change so often. But there is, I think, a prospect, and he's certainly got the ambition or expressed an ambition to play for England. And if he goes on bowling as well as he does be a very strong contender. I
1: I was very glad, indeed, that Marnus Lebeshain got... I think he stood out for the Australians. The other one you identified, and I I didn't, was Elise Perry. Yes. Tell me about her, Richard.
0: Well, she just had... She's an absolutely outstanding performer. As um, Wisdom points out, she... Dominated the Women's Ashes. She produced an outstanding victory for Australia. She's a terrific performer with the ball. She took seven for 22 in the ODI in Canterbury. And um, she made a huge contribution to the Test at Taunton. 116 and 76 not out. A dominant performer in women's cricket for Quite a few years now and she's won the women's cricketer of the year internationally twice now
1: so she's good. she looms now in women's cricket like a Bradman in the old days or Stokes today or something which is quite extraordinary
0: if they had a ball like they do after the Wimbledon final they'd be dancing a uh, they'd have to take the first dance together
1: that's a lovely thought actually perhaps they should do that um, one thing richard i forecast that we would get a new zealand player just to acknowledge their enormous contribution last summer but absolutely not taylor for instance did not get met was not one of the five i think that's a pity
0: a little bit of a shame but probably ross taylor was the, the, their candidate uh, since kane williamson had won it before
1: i suppose just in terms of actual achievement he was crowded out by the other five Fair dues, I suppose. Let's move on to the books of the year, where I I was absolutely caught off balance by Alex Massey, our friend Alex Massey's choice of wisdom book of the year. I would never have gone for it simply on the title alone. Cricket point two uh, would have put me off totally.
0: Well, I I don't I can't stand that expression. It's become a bit of a cliche. So and so two point. I don't even know how you say it. Do you say two point zero? I don't know. Anyway. The the book was Tim Wigmore and Freddie White's Cricket 2.0. Um, it didn't appear, interestingly enough, in the nominees for the MCC Cricket Society Book of the Year. It may reflect a different sort of taste among their members uh, who were nominated. But um, it's clearly an important book um, that he's picked. It's important because it's an analysis of T20 how it's influenced the game and how it's becoming almost a separate version of the game, a sport in its own right. And it's a bit of a reminder that that's how cricket began. Cricket began as a short one-day game. It evolved in the Victorian age and afterwards into the the longer version, but it's now perhaps going back to
1: where it began. In other words, what Alex Massey's done is chosen a book which is utterly contemporary, but also timeless. That's I think that was quite took a bit of vision on his part i guess yep i did think that um henry blofeld got a bit of a caning uh from alex massey our old our uh, poor old henry uh as idle as and cliched his book uh, a to z of cricket was described that's that strong stuff in wisdom for an old timer like blowers it is
0: i don't think his public will mind too much some and among whom are you
1: and me They might even buy his new book as a demonstration of loyalty. I think I will. I felt that that was a bit below the belt, actually, having a crack at Blowfield like that. But what was wonderful was Wisden's own tribute to Stephen Chalk, who we talked about last week. They gave him a cut-out section which paid tribute to this great inventor of oral cricket writing.
0: Absolutely. Stephen Chalk um, has produced this new genre of cricket history, um, very good comparison in that tribute with Alan Lomax. Alan Lomax was the great musicologist who unearthed and preserved so much American uh, folk and country music and its and its performers and their their memories. And he's done a similar job with English cricket. Before we leave books, I want to mention the Wisdom Writing Competition. This is a very good idea which Wisdom has uh, promoted for I think ten years now invites uh, new cricket writers to submit a short piece to Wisdom and it publishes the best one. Uh, This year the winner is Jonathan Fuchs, who's a Sussex man and he's written a very wistful piece about meeting his idol, Alan Wells, Sussex's idol, and hearing his story of his golden duck on his only test. And he writes... The whole county felt his pain. That day, Sussex wept for Alan Wells. Very interestingly, well over 100 entries this year. Uh, so just encourage anybody who's a cricket writer to enter this competition for next year. At the very least, you get your name published in Wisden.
1: I want to mention, by the way, the lovely book about David Shepard, the Reverend David Shepherd. At last, he's had the biography he's merited, Andrew Badstock's batting for the poor and dealing with the battle between the church and his mission to God and his mission to cricket, because he was just a fabulously talented cricketer. Massey writes very well indeed about it, though he does produce the worst pun I've ever seen. He says, when finally Shepard gives up cricket, uh, to go into the church he says lords loss was the lord's gain now i think that's extremely poor show that pun i think it's just too too obvious loads of people made the pun when he got ennobled. the lord is now my shepherd <laughs> that's actually extremely extremely good the author quotes jeffrey fisher then archbishop of canterbury on the possibility of shepherd becoming captain of england as a piece of what I should regard as direct service to the wider interests of the kingdom of God. And uh, one of the things it brings out about Shepard, is what a good cricketer he was. I mean, actually, if he'd stayed in the game for 10 years at the top level, suggests that he would be ranking up there with Peter May, which is, I hadn't quite grasped how outstanding a player he was.
0: No, nor had I. I saw him once or twice when I was a boy. He was a beautiful batsman to watch.
1: Robin Marler, his, who who played with him or for him at Sussex, said that if he'd stayed in the game, he would have been one of the group who would have scored more than 100 centuries. I, I had a lovely correspondence with David Shepherd right at the end of his life when he was dying of cancer. He said, uh, because, of course, of his incredibly brave role, actually, I think, in the Basil D'Oliveira affair when he he really muscled in against the MCC and caused trouble for them when they didn't choose Basil d'Olivier to go to South Africa in 1968. He sent, me, he sent me a lovely letter about my book afterwards, which I still have and I'm very proud of. Now, we ought to move on.
0: Just before we do, uh, very quickly on personal I was interested to see that in all the list of books submitted to Wisdom for review, there was just one cricket novel. I'll give it a name check. It's by David Redfern. It's called Lord Hawke's Cufflinks. Why are there so few cricketing novels for adults? You know, it's a fascinating game, lots of drama in it, but it's
1: rarely used as a subject for an adult novel. You are probably our most leading contemporary novelist on cricket, wouldn't you say, Richard? Well, if you insist.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Only only if you press me to say that, but... uh, (laughs) I have written two cricket novels. They languish in a lot of dressing rooms all over the world uh, where they've been presented to teams and people that didn't want one. But though I say it myself, uh, my second one, The Network, contains one of the best cricket matches ever written in fiction. I can't say it that myself. Nobody else is going to
1: say I agree, I it. I agree, and I think it's considerably better, actually, than the over-celebrated... A Count in England, There, England, by Moody Macdonald. A.G. Macdonald. Actually, is rather tired and cliched, in my uh, opinion.
0: Macdonald was a Scotsman. He didn't understand anything about cricket. So it's all just caricatures of the players. And There were famous literary players in that side. The captain is, is Sir John Squire, J.C. Squire. One of the other players is Alec War, even in Waugh's brother. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's, you know, it's a comic turn of... English literary figures, and you've got no real sense of the cricket being played in it.
1: One of the problems, I think, is that our leading novelists of the 20th century, none of them that I can think of, actually were at all interested in cricket. Evelyn Waugh, unlike his brother Alex, had no interest in cricket. In fact, he found Alex's cricket team, that we've just been talking about, a bore, and that—and he was very rude about it. And Somerset Maughan, um, D.H. Lawrence and even more contemporary figures like Martin Amis and McEwan and so on. None of them have, as far as I can tell, the faintest interest in cricket whatsoever. And I think that's the loss to literature rather than to those, and to those novelists, because I think they would have used it if they'd been interested in cricket.
0: Well, the great exception to that, though, is Sebastian Fawkes, who's a pretty talented player and a very enthusiastic one. And I can't remember a novel of his with cricket in it, except for the pastiche Peachy woodhouse novel he wrote and obviously in that cricket match jeeves performs brilliantly as he should he's named after a cricketer but um he's very unjust to bertie sebastian Fawkes. and i told him that some years ago bertie is a rackets player and rackets is a very good foundation for cricket so i'm told bertie if he was any good as a rackets player is likely to have been good as a cricket player instead of a no-hoper as Sebastian Fawkes makes him yeah
1: Sebastian actually is a very good as is his brother Edward Folks. they're both very very good cricketers I played against uh, both members of the Folks cricketing uh, dynasty and um, they're formidable now let's move on to the uh, matter of the World Cup last year how Wisden has dealt with that and the sort of events of, of 2019 well, they've dealt with it
0: in great depth. Um, not surprisingly, I would say that the the last super over has probably got the greatest depth of analysis of any six balls have ever received in Wisden. It's got the experiences of that over by all the England players individually. A very interesting section. It's got the experience of that over, that final as experienced through a lot of um, mostly artistic celebrities like Sam Mendes, and I think, actually, Sebastian Fawkes was one of them. Tim Rice is another, the way they actually saw and experienced that final. I think you experienced that final in a very interesting location.
1: Yeah, yes, I certainly did. I was in Jerusalem, in East Jerusalem, at the Colony Hotel, having dinner with the Dean of St George's Cathedral and our wives, And it was a lovely early evening out there. It was just getting dark. And we were having Moussail wine uh the just delicious beirut wine and and because Match special was not allowed it was banned they won't allow the radio to be planned for competition reasons it really drove me mad what because there's obviously no exactly there's no competition what's that but, all about but i was getting texts on the sort of you know you would you would get the score you know something somebody something and we were completely transfixed i mean it, it, but we would get every Two or three minutes, we get the because le- it was very slow. Remember that we get you know four, six, run out or whatever. Uh, oh dear, uh,
0: yeah. Uh, going back to Wisden's coverage, as I say, very interesting, a lot of in-depth perspective on it from both players and spectators. But my one criticism: they're all English. I think it might have been nice if they'd included a, um, some New Zealand players and some New Zealand spectators. How did they experience it? would have added some depth to the um, profile and it would have been fair play to New Zealand, who, as the editor Lawrence Booth says, took their defeat, which many think was unjust, in such a good spirit.
1: I think that's a serious oversight, given that New Zealand's role was as, at least as great as England's in that match. I, I think Wisdom has done very well, but it needs to be held to account for failing to get that New Zealand uh, experience
0: I wonder if they asked any New Zealanders. Perhaps it was too painful for <laughs> to ask New Zealanders to uh, recreate it. But I think they'd pretty sure they would have contributed, and it would have added an extra lens, an important lens to the coverage of that great event.
1: Now, one of the big differences in this brilliant edition of *Wisdom* as a whole is they're beginning to take remedy a an injustice stretching back more than a century and take women's cricket very seriously at last. Is that do you get that sense, Richard? Very
0: much so. I mean there are just about fifty pages of women's cricket all over the world. I looked back about twenty years ago, there were a few pages about seven at the most, all about English cricket and women's cricket got less space than cricket in English public schools for boys.
1: Mind you, they did give in those yeah they did give an absurd amount of space to English public school cricket, and actually, it's not not just women's cricket that suffered, but I always felt it was abominable. Actually, that league cricket played in Yorkshire and Lancashire, which was of far higher standard and far more interesting than public school cricket. But, you know, they, 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 it was outrageous.
0: I think in the old days it was probably very good marketing because I'm sure loads of those public school boys, some chap who you know, average 10 with the bat and, um, you know, 30 with the ball,
1: he would have bought Wisden each year to see his entry. These very mediocre public school boys crowded out, not just uh, league players, but also, of course, proper coverage of women's cricket. Uh, another interesting thing in this year's Wisdom is a retrospective
0: obituary for a um, great pioneer of women's cricket, Heron Maxwell. The editor says she should have had an obituary in Wisdom 1956, and she's now getting one in 2020, and they're going to repeat that in subsequent years, and it will be a, a rebalancing of Wisdom. Uh, certainly, if it's the obituary coverage. There may be other sections they could do that too as well. They could have some retrospective women cricketers of the year.
1: I have a strong view on this. That um, all credit to Wisden for making Claire Taylor one of the five cricketers of the year. I think it was in two thousand and nine. But Rachel Hayhoe Flint, you know, such a great early figure in, in you know in the sixties and seventies mainly. I think England cricket captain, really charismatic. The first one to put women's cricket absolutely on the map, as far as I was concerned anyway. She should have been made uh, Cricketer of the Year and maybe they should give her a retrospective Cricketer of the Year when the moment comes.
0: Well, I think that's a strong possibility and a strong candidate. I think, in fact, you could even contemplate a sort of special edition of Women's Wisdom. You know, Wisdom as it might have appeared in early years if they'd been doing justice to women's cricket generally. That's a thought for the publisher. A new title.
1: It's not just uh, cricketers, is it? It's also writers. What you're seeing now is the emergence of a really distinguished, serious group of of cricket writers. Lovely piece um, by Emma John about getting into uh, the MCC in this year's edition.
0: It's a very revealing piece about a long wait to get into the MCC and then, then about the sexism she experienced when she finally made it and visited Lords as a member. Very, very well worth reading and very entertaining but a very powerful message as well.
1: I do think that Emma John is one of, it's re- you can't overestimate this, but when you and I started off reading Cricket Pages it was all men and you've got this wonderful generation of really talented and interesting cricket writers who are women and they're emerging all over the place and it's bringing much more charm and better writing in many cases. The old obscurity and clubbiness, which disfigured a lot of the cricket writing when we were young, has gone as a result of this.
0: I think that's right. And what's good is the women writers emerging
1: all over the world. The Editor's Notebook this year is first-rate. Lawrence Booth has real authority and great originality. He makes a series of powerful and quite controversial points, but his judgment seems to me to be more or less infallible, don't you think?
0: Yep, I kept noting through. Yes, 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 agree, agree, agree. World Cup cricket win shows that cricket must be free to air, absolutely. Absolutely create the same inspiration that it did in 2005 the way the world cup was settled the small print rules about the number of boundaries
1: yes very good indeed on the move towards four-day tests when i think he becomes the first editor of wisdom i should think to quote Kierkegaard, the 19th century danish philosopher theologian
0: Absolutely, but he was a very promising off-spinner, um, Kierkegaard, before he turned to philosophy. It's, um, it's one of cricket's might-have-beens, what he'd have achieved on the, on the field.
1: Kierkegaard said, in fact, uh, of uh, the pro- four-day test proposal, according to the editor of uh, Wisdom that, it, it, that it, the bringing cricket down from five days to four days for the Test match might mean a little more space in the calendar, but quickly killed by the next frippery. I thought that was a magisterial demolition of this yep. abominable idea to shorten Test matches.
0: Totally. Of course, he takes the hundred pieces and there's a long dissection of the, the hundred in, um, in Wisdom very mocking piece later on by Kierkegaard. Our summer sport risks
1: being tranquilised by the trivial. He also writes a deadly few paragraphs in defence of Somerset and attacking the authorities for penalising them for producing spinners' wickets. Uh, I think his argument that having a spinner's wicket for once, rather than these sort of dull seamers wickets, has given us our two best current spinners in the shape of leach and bess and without somerset taking risks like that where would we be in fact we might not even have had the great finish we did last summer with leach and stokes winning the match for us by one wicket i mean it's uh i I, it's a very powerful argument i do think these editors notes are the best by any wisdom editor since john woodcock the greatest post-war stylist in the english language in my view was editor of wisdom and produced very very beautiful notes I also was extremely glad to see that um, Mr Booth highlighted the outrageous injustice uh, of denying test status to the rest of the world matches that hastily arranged summer tour by the rest of the world against England in 1970 after the South African tour was cancelled.
0: An amazingly good side, the 1970 rest of the world side and the... England performances against them really should have should get test status they should get test status ahead of uh, and those players Alan Jones of Glamorgan got his only what he thought was his only test cap against that nineteen seventy side. It was a brilliant, as I say, a brilliant side, and um he's denied his test status and uh, the legendary JEP McMaster still retains his.
1: J.P. McMaster may need a little bit of explanation. Uh, he, he probably does.
0: J.P. McMaster is England's sixty-seventh Test cap uh, in the in the list. Um, he played in one match in South Africa, in the very first English tour of South Africa, and the match got retrospective Test match status, became first class and Test status off the event, like the first England Australia Test match. Anyway. Pro-JP was out first ball, he didn't bowl, he didn't take a catch in the field, and that represents his entire first-class career. He is statistically the worst first-class cricketer of all time and has set a low standard that can never be beat.
1: And yet he has test-match status.
0: He's a test-match player forever. He's number 67.
1: Whereas that England team, which did so well in 1970, led by Ray Illingworth, who's never been given quite the credit he he deserves and luckhurst really brave batting at the top of the order and none of that was um, given any credit whereas lawrence booth the editor of wisdom says give back test match status to the rest of the world tour i completely agree in which case you need to take away test match status from south africa's cricket after 1960 when south africa withdrew from the commonwealth because of its apartheid policies There was a move by the black cricketing or Asian countries to get South Africa out of the Imperial Cricket Conference, the International Cricket Conference, and therefore not able to play test cricket. And that move was resisted by England and Australia. And they therefore, South Africa carried on playing test cricket from 1961 right up till 1970 when it's finally stopped. Now, I submit that that is indefensible. And that all those white South African teams chosen on the principles of apartheid after South Africa had left the Commonwealth and was outside the cricket administration, they were illegal matches sanctioned by the essentially by the racist authorities of Australia, England and New Zealand. They should be taken away. They should be stripped of their test match status.
0: Well, we'll get a lot of argument about that. But there's, there's certainly a case for it in that, you know, if the rules mean anything, the rules they should have been applied. There's an argument about whether you can apply them retrospectively. And if you start digging too deeply into the record books, you end up tearing up a lot of the history of cricket. Though they were white sides, they were particularly at the end of that period, an extremely, they were a very... Brilliant side. They were very, a they were brilliant very, side. Really, They're a brilliant side. They had great players. And I feel some sympathy for them and for their opponents and having their performances stripped away from them. Another very important paragraph by Lawrence Booth, I thought very important, was the paragraph on the unconscious racism that still disfigures the way non-white players in the England side are um, are characterised. (laughs) Sad that he should have to write a paragraph like that in
1: 2020. It's a very important paragraph, actually it's probably worth citing one or two of the examples uh, he, he cites chris lewis the england all rounder saying after he's called a brilliant century one of the spectators said to him well struck you know, as if a sort of black player would bulldoze or or, or or biff his way to a double century not stroke his way and he gives other examples of Usman uh, osman afsal being flashy or alex tudor Frustrating, Della Bevan Malkin always had a wonky radar. There was always a, a lurking, completely unconscious, racist uh, subtext. I, I I would say, actually, it's not just, uh, I think, uh, black or coloured players who get this. Left-handers always have suffered from the, the same unconscious bias. The way that of a left-hander drives the ball and gets picked up at second slip, that's always being loose and reckless, whereas a right-hander has, has always being unlucky, or it was, it was something the bowler did. There's a, there are all kinds of biases in the game of cricket. Yeah,
0: talking of left-handers, there's a complete essay on the bias against left-handers in England and points out that the Times actually wanted left-handed batting banned quite seriously. When was this? Actually, just before, and indeed just after the Great War, the Times led a campaign to ban left-handed batting. At least they were to be gradually extinguished they would be forced to convert to right-handed or leave the first-class scene.
1: It's a very interesting part of British social history because if you were born left-handed in those days, you were often told to become right-handed. My grandfather, who was a lovely man, I was very close to him, Alan Brown, he had a terrible stutter and one of the reasons my parents thought that he did was that he had gone to, I think, Osborne College, which was a naval college, and been forced to become a right-hander which, just imagine it, at the age of eight or nine. And he loved his cricket. He was a member of the MCC, by the way, and he introduced me to cricket, Alan branded, but I think he was of, of that generation where you were tormented for being left-handed. Was, I think George Sixth was another victim. Navy again, you see.
0: Navy, Osborne College, converted from a left-hander to a right-hander and, of course, suffered from a stutter all his life, uh, which he overcame with the... Uh,
1: with that lovely film, as, as we all saw. King's in that. Speech.
0: Yes, Colin Firth played played
1: George VI and Geoffrey Rush was the speech therapist. Beautiful film. There's so rich, uh, Wisdom, this year that it seems almost invidious to choose what to go on to next. One of the first uh,
0: sections of Wisdom I turn to is the deaths. They've dealt very well with our, our friend Abdul Qadir, done him justice. Moving down alphabetically, there's a nice obituary for Lord Bramall, former chief of the defence staff. It reveals the interesting fact that he was... Coached in early life by Douglas Jardine, played a lot of army cricket, and I remember seeing him uh, in his seventies play for the House of Lords against the House of Commons in the infamous match when Geoffrey Archer ran himself out. But Lord Bramall was a star of that that match. He made about twenty or thirty. Really, age seventy, Bramall was still playing. Age seventy, he was in his seventies then, and he was, you know, a stylish batsman. Very competent, and he certainly made about 20 or 30. That whole day was overshadowed by the terrible events that followed Geoffrey Archer's run-out, which... What were the events? They cannot be repeated. Um, it's a, <laughs> a code of omerta amongst all those who observed them.
1: Bramwell, I'm sure, acquitted himself, as he did throughout his magnificent life, with total uh, honour, courage, discipline, and a gentle sense of humour, I imagine. According to his obituary, he scored his last century in Hong Kong when he was in his 50s, so... Wow. He um, was, of course, president... He was president of the MCC in 1988, and according to this superb obituary, it's one of Wisdom's very best, he declared that he looked forward to seeing the MCC acting as, i quoting Bramwell now, the constitutional monarch of English cricket.
0: Well, that's a very fine aspiration, absolutely. Interesting fact to emerge in one obituary, Adzil Holder, Barbados cricketer, coach in Scotland... One of his charges was a young Andrew Neil, and I never knew the great political inquisitor I had a cricketing past, but that's what you find out
1: from wisdom. Yeah, that's, that's a very important piece of information. Andrew Neil has kept that quiet for throughout his life. I've uh, had a number of dealings with uh, Mr Neil. Really? Not all of them particularly pleasant, and um, <laughs> he's never let, let loose the idea that he's, uh, he played cricket. I don't have that many problems with uh, wisdom. I think it's a great volume, this. But I do think that obituaries has a major error of judgment. And that concerns uh, John Carlyle, the former Tory MP, who was a great uh, supporter of racist white South Africa and, and used to lobby for it and was a supporter of the rebel tours. Now, he had no interest in cricket at all. I knew him quite well. He was a cheerful man. And actually, when I was political correspondent of the Evening Standard, and he was one of those uh, small band of MPs, and I owe them an eternal debt of gratitude, who were awake at 6.45 in time for our first edition. So I would ring him at home, and he would spout some piece of uh, something. He'd say something publishable about John Major's government. But I have to say that uh, he had no interest in cricket, apart from, from supporting the rebel tour. And for him to be given a long paragraph... Uh, on the basis of that. Whereas really quite, you know, distinguished cricketers like sort of Lewis Cooper, who kept wicket for Queensland over a decade, getting six lines and and the wretched Carlyle getting twenty lines of coverage shows a major failure of judgment by the obituary's editor of Wisdom.
0: Yes. I agree with you about Carlyle, but I do think the editor showed very good judgment in giving it an obituary to Nasim Sheikh who's described as a prominent local umpire who took time off from his butcher's shop in Karachi to officiate. And I think that's exactly the sort of obituary you want sorry, it's very sad that he died, and he died in thinking during a match. Sad loss for for his family, but nonetheless one has to say that is the sort of obituary you do want to read in wisdom.
1: Yes, I well, and also, of course, his family will love the fact that there he is in in Wisden. I mean, it, it's a, it'll be a matter of great honour for them in Karachi that he that that that, that this wonderful man uh, who ran a bookseller shop and officiated at important matches has now been quite rightly commemorated in Wisden. That's that's exactly what it's for.
0: One name we both know in the obituaries list, somebody we knew well, significant one is Charles Williams became Lord Williams of Oval, Oxford University, captain, batsman for Essex, banker, labour peer, biographer of Don Bradman, and a very good biography of Don Bradman. We could always get him to reminisce about facing the pace bowlers that he faced in the 1950s, and he loved to talk about that, particularly facing Frank Tyson, who had a very unusual method of sledging. He'd stand in the middle of the pitch and glare and recite a passage from Wordsworth, uh, it's not the sort of sledging you encounter these days.
1: Certainly not from a fast bowler. Although I imagine John Snow uh, might have quoted some poetry at you if you—probably his own, yes, because he was a pretty good poet <laughs> John himself. Snow, John Snow, he published poetry. A ferocious, one of England's greatest fast bowlers, who scared really good batsmen witless, and yet on retirement produced a volume of really rather good. Poetry, he was the son, I think, I'm right in saying, of a Sussex vicar, wasn't he, John Snow? He was,
0: his father was a clergyman. Yep, absolutely. Frank Tyson was an absolutely fearsome um fast bowler, but um he was an English teacher. He wrote very, very good autobi cricketing autobiography and one of the best called a typhoon called Tyson. It's got one of the I think the best description of the physical sensations of being. Fast bowler, uh, he was absolutely terrifying in his day. And um, a lot of batsmen used to walk when he appealed for LBW against him, they didn't wait for the umpire's verdict, they'd say, That's <laughs> out.
1: That's a tribute to him. because That's a tribute they to him. didn't want to face him anymore. No, they didn't want
0: to face any more of that. No, helmets, like our in friend, days.
1: our great mutual friend, Afdab Ghul, the Pakistan opener. Do you remember? He told us quite candidly why he. Made himself unavailable. Was it for the Pakistan's nineteen sixty nine tour of Australia? He just did not want to face. No, nineteen seventy three. I think it was nineteen seventy two, seventy three. Yeah. He didn't want to face Lillian Thompson. He just and so he made himself unavailable. Which Thompson? Was handy. Thompson
0: wasn't Thompson wasn't there, but Lily on a green wicket in Melbourne. Um, that was a it caused a lot of problems for Said Ahmed. It really ended his career. After, of course, you know, was hit in the head by the very first ball of the Test match uh, by Alan Ward, who was pretty fast, who was a very fast bowler at the time, and and had to retire, and that paved the way for Zaheer Abbas to um, make his ever's great innings of 274, 1971. He came in at second ball, you know, number the, the opening batsman's you know been laid out, and um, you know you go out and make 274, not a bad start in Test cricket.
1: And he went from strength to strength, one of the greatest uh, players of all time, ended up as president of the ICC. A a, a magnificent cricket, sir.
0: Just a footnote, I think, to something I'd forgotten um, in Malcolm Nash's uh, obituary. We talked about him a bit last time. Yes, he was... I'd forgotten that apart from the six sixes, which he yielded to Gary Sobers, he was later on hit for 34 in a single over also at swansea by frank hayes of of lancashire and I, he was very proud of actually both of those overs and quite rightly so and i do think that you have to be a good bowler to be hit for six sixes or even five in a single over because it means you were bowling within the batsman's range you were bowling you were bowling straight and trying to get him out and i think he sh- he was right to take take pride in that and i it's a great consolation to me
1: when I get hit for six. You've been bowling well. You I'm bol- oh, I'm bowling well, yes. <laughs> You've I'm
0: been bowling hit well. for six.
1: I must remember that. Next time that oh, somebody yes. hits me back over my head yes. for six, that's yes. actually a good ball. doesn't feel What's
0: it. Boy, another exponent of that theory is Captain Mannering in the famous Dad's Army cricket match. Wonderful. It's a wonderful episode. It's not available in video, but you can hear it on radio. Mannering and the platoon. Play a cricket match against the Wardens. The Wardens, of course, cheat by importing a ringer, but uh, Mannering puts himself on to bowl and um, very proud of his bowling. He said, I'll just, um, I'll offer him a googly, I don't think he'll read this, and he we can hear it. He offers, bowl, bowls the ball, and it's crashed straight back over his head. You know, it hits the sight screen, and in the video version, you can see Mannering. Looking up, uh, moments of indignation, he says, oh, yes, I'm just tempting him.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it breaks my heart to say that we're going to have to end now, but there's so much more to discuss that we will be returning to Wisdom next week. But from Peter O'Bourne in Wiltshire, uh, goodbye.
0: And from Richard Heller, the same. And I'm only sorry that we've had to deal with this year's Wisdom in the space of a T20 when it deserves the space of a timeless test match. Goodbye from me and thank you for listening.